I'm going to dominate this guy across from me every single snap. That doesn't exist anymore at the University of Oklahoma. Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. It's a duo crew this evening. I'm Adam Jacquez, Tyler Burton joining us as well, Corbin taking the week off for some well-deserved rest. Uh, he's not a bandwagon fan, so he will be back next week, win or lose. But uh, Tyler, we got to jump right into it. Uh, OU takes their first loss of the season down in Waco. Uh, people want some heads to roll, um, you know, across the fan base. But man, what happened here? That's a good question, Adam. Um, I'm definitely feeling a lot better now than how I felt in the car driving home from Waco on Saturday. Uh, I've got to thank the Kansas Jayhawks a lot for that because I think that a lot of OU fans' spirits were kind of lifted on Saturday night, about 1030. But seriously, you know, finally after a loss, we can sit here and I think we can kind of rip the Band-Aid off on this and kind of give what our real thoughts are on this Oklahoma football team. You know, we no longer have to defend anybody or sugarcoat things because the team is undefeated. And, you know, while they haven't looked, you know, very, very good throughout the course of the regular season, we can't criticize them because they keep finding ways to win football games. So uh, it's time for us to finally call it for what it is. And I'm excited to get into that as we dive into what happened on Saturday because it was not good. Let me tell you, Uh, being in attendance for that game, um, (laughs) I I left with about five minutes left. I wanted to get out of there a little bit early, beat the rush, getting out of there with traffic and everything. But no, it was... It was head-scratching from start to finish, especially that fourth quarter. Yeah, you know it's bad when you leave the game early. Um, And I don't blame you. Um, You know, this was an interesting loss. Um, I would say, yeah, you have some of your big-time playoff losses to Georgia and Alabama and LSU. You kind of expect to be a little bit outmanned against the SEC recruiting um, at that point. But to me, this was probably the most head-scratching regular season loss in the sense that you know, yeah, there's been upsets from K-State and Iowa State and whoever in, in the past couple of years and kind of explain it away of it's an 11 a.m. Nobody was motivated. They just didn't get up out of bed. One reason or another, this felt like a Baylor team that just came in and pushed us around physically. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. um, they were they were stronger. They were more physical. They were more disciplined. Um, they didn't make nearly as many mistakes, obviously. And you just sit there and you feel so incompetent as an OU fan, like, man, like, I don't even know what to, what to point my finger at at this point. And uh, I I think it's caused an interesting reaction in the OU fan base, essentially to the point of everyone's pointing in so many different directions. There's not really one consensus of here's what went wrong. Here's how to fix this, fix it. And I think that's what's most frustrating. Well, I felt good about this game. I think most of last week, you know, this was a team coming off of a bye week. They had two weeks to prepare. We all know how good Lincoln is. When he has an extra week to prepare for a defense, you were 9-0 and and still not getting a ton of respect nationally or from the college football playoff committee. And as, as I was walking, uh, you know, over the bridge up to the stadium on Saturday, you know, I felt pretty good about it. I thought Oklahoma was going to win this game. Then when we won the coin toss and elected to receive, you know, I immediately thought, okay, Uh, We're going to take the football leak in this offense. You know, we're going to set the tone early on how this game's going to go. And Adam, that first drive was probably the worst series of offense I've ever seen since Lincoln got here. And and that includes the 2015 Tennessee game, uh, Baker making his first road start. So offense came out uh, flat, you know, looking almost unfocused, unprepared. Adam, we've watched every single snap that OU has played, I think probably in the last 10 years. And that was the first game where I truly set back halfway through and I asked ourselves, you know, what's our game plan? What are we trying to do? 
Um, where was, you know, what are we trying to do? I didn't think that Lincoln did a very good job as far as kind of getting Caleb Williams into rhythm. Where was the quick game, the slants, the swing passes, the quick outs? Um, I don't think Lincoln did a very good job helping Caleb kind of get into the flow of the game and what was ultimately his first true road start in a road environment. But, you know, even though Baylor for most of the game was playing two high safeties, Oklahoma couldn't run the football, dude. And even to start the second half when it was still a one-possession game, it was 10-7, to Lincoln didn't try to establish the running game whatsoever to help take the pressure off the quarterback. So now we can get into the offensive line play here in a second and also kind of what we saw from the backs. But this offense, dude, they were flat all day. And Adam, my biggest takeaway from this game, and I tweeted it out shortly after the fact, OU had two weeks to prepare for the biggest game of the year against the best team on their schedule that they've played so far. And that's how you come out and play, getting pushed around, physically dominated for four quarters against Baylor. It was a major red flag coming off of a bye that Lincoln had no answer all day long for what Baylor was doing defensively. So you got to give credit to Dave Aranda, Jeff Grimes. They had a great game plan, um, and they took it to OU for four straight quarters. I wasn't, I was aggravated coming out of this game, but it wasn't. It's not like that. This loss hurt like some of the other ones typically do because they literally got pushed around for four quarters. Baylor was the better team on Saturday and it wasn't a fluke. Yeah. I mean, offensively we were just completely stagnant out there and you're right. Like Lincoln Riley's play calling didn't really help this team out. And I don't know if that was necessarily inexperience on Caleb Williams part, but it almost felt like there was nothing there to help him out as far as uh, I think the first time we we ran a screen pass was in the fourth quarter to a receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we did a swing pass to Eric Gray in the first half, but I don't know if that necessarily was designed or or whether it was. It wasn't really a screen, but like the quick passing game, especially when Baylor's going to be playing off with the the kind of the umbrella coverage. It's like you've got to dink and dunk your way down the field, um, and, and you got to continue to run the ball and and you know, force the effort. And this has been my complaint. Over the years with Lincoln Riley, he just forgets that he can run the ball. Uh, maybe he tries it one or two times and it doesn't work, and he just kind of gives up at that point. Mm-hmm. And he got away with that against Texas Tech a few weeks back. But in most cases, like you have to stick with it and, and keep it going and continue to uh, have the defense stay honest on that. And if you move away from that, like that's just not a good recipe for success. So I, I don't know. This offensive line um, could be something that Lincoln doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in. Well, I thought that the offensive line was good in pass protection for the most part, but Baylor was consistently getting pressure against the Oklahoma front when OU tried to run block. And, you know, Kennedy Brooks, as great as he is, he's really not the type of guy who's going to make guys miss, especially in the backfield. So Oklahoma was always finding themselves in second and long, third and line, playing from behind the change or chains. And, you know, I thought it was, you know, pretty interesting when asked about the play of the offensive line on Saturday. Lincoln came out today and said he thought that they played pretty well for the most part. You know, Adam, you if you go back and you watch that game, our offensive line, particularly the interior, they got dominated and pushed around a little bit. You know, that's not a knock on Andrew Rame. He's a freshman. He's going to get there. He's got all the makings of a really, really good center. But Marquise Hayes, Chris Murray, those are two guys that have played a ton of college football, and they looked like they were on roller skates a bunch of times on Saturday. So, you know, Tyrese Robinson, our most consistent offensive lineman all year long, he had some really good moments. Anton Harrison, that guy is what he is. He flashes at times, but he's just him being able to put the consistency together for a complete four quarters is something he's he struggled with all year long. Um, guys, and, and Adam, I think, you know, very similar to Andrew Rain with Anton Harrison. He's just not strong enough yet uh, to, to play on the offensive line at the power five level. And that's an issue we'll get to here in a little bit. But I want to kind of get your thoughts on Bill Beanbow. 
And I want to talk about Bill for a little bit because, you know, this was this is supposed to be one of, if not the best offensive line coaches in the country. And I don't think, Adam, that this offensive line has improved very much at all over the course of this season. And here's my frustrations really, you know, with, with Bill. Oklahoma's offensive line, when Baker and Kyler were here, those 2017-2018 units, probably two of the top five offensive lines Oklahoma's ever had in the history of their football program. But in the last three years, man, the offensive line play has kind of regressed. And, you know, Adam, you, can, you can't blame it on recruiting because OU's getting the talent signed. They're getting them on campus. I think it's a problem when they get to campus, you know. And, again, I'll, I'll let you touch on this here in a second. I, I kind of went back and did some research uh, on some of the players that we've signed at the offensive line position going to, going back to recruiting. You know, Marquise Hayes, Tyrese Robinson, those are all those are both four-star guys. 2018, Bray Walker was a five-star number four tackle in the country. Tremonde Moore, he's gone. Daryl Simpson hasn't done anything. David Swabe, I don't even think he's with the program. 2019, Stacey Wilkins, he's gone. EJ Doma Ogar, he's gone. Marcus Alexander, I don't think he's done anything. Finley Felix, I don't even know if he's on the team. And then, and then 2020, Nate Anderson, Andrew Rame, there's your starting center. Anton Harris, there's your starting left tackle. Aaron Parks, I don't know if he's ever going get to get on the field. Noah Nelson, he's gone. And then last year, 2021, Savion Bird, we heard so many things in the so many good things in the summer about him. He hasn't touched the field really at all in meaningful snaps. So either the evaluations while they're in high school aren't very good, or the past couple of seasons, Bill just hasn't been able to develop them quite like what we saw those guys from 16, 17, and 18. And you know, I, I'm not saying that I want him gone. It's way too early for that. He's a really good coach, but I'm starting to look at that heated seat button on the dash. We talked about it way back before the season even started that. You know, there's kind of that consensus out there that, oh, OU's offensive line, they're going to struggle through the first couple of games, but by Texas, they'll have it figured out. And it's, it's kind of funny that we just accepted that. Um, I think we were complaining about it at the time saying, hey, it shouldn't be that way. They should get it figured out. And, you know, there should be years where it's solid from the get go. And this year has been pretty inconsistent. And it's really frustrating to see guys like a Marquise Hayes um, or maybe even a Tyrese Robinson that are three plus year starters and, they have some good games, but they also have some really bad games at the same time too. It's like, they just don't progress once they get here. And, um, you know, if you look at all that and look at the recruiting scene and the way we've missed out on some of the really, really elite offensive linemen recently, yeah, we get four stars, but we're missing out on the really top end guys that I think can make a difference here. You start to say, Hey, you know, Beanbow's been here for about nine years. Sometimes it's just good to have a change of scenery and, doesn't mean he's a bad coach. Um, just means maybe he needs to get into a new new uh, school or maybe be an offensive coordinator somewhere to kind of mix it up to help him revive what was working for him earlier in his career. And I think mm -hmm. OU has to be okay with that and say, hey, we're confident. We're OU. We're going to go get whoever the best offensive line coach available is. It, it was interesting listening to Gabe and Teddy on the Oklahoma Breakdown on, on Sunday night's episode with them. You know, Gabe was kind of talking about how it seems like OU overcomplicates things in terms of their running schemes and what they try to do uh, in the running game. That was something that was very interesting to me and how Gabe was kind of talking about how there's running concepts in the National Football League that are simplified more than what OU is doing right now. So I don't know if, if Lincoln Riley needs to simplify things and kind of limit it down to whether it's a uh, – uh, you know, uh, a, a zone running type scheme, you know, do something strictly on the guard tackle counter. Um, but they've got to do something to shore things up offensively running the football. And Baylor was able to generate a huge amount of penetration uh, in, in their front seven. And 
honestly, Adam, it's not going to get any easier over the next two weeks. But I do want to ask you a little bit about what you thought about Caleb Williams' performance and kind of the whole Caleb Williams, Spencer Rattler debacle with them, you know, kind of subbing in and out for each other in the second half. I thought Caleb was okay, I guess. I mean, his two turnovers were really bad. I don't think Lincoln set him up for success in this game. Um, the the, just the odd play calling of not having those quick passing you know, schemes to get him in rhythm um, so that then he can throw it downfield, um, especially when you're going to have guys backing off, uh, you know, playing too deep safety, umbrella coverage. And we're going to see even more of that this week against Iowa State. That's, you know, the, the godfather mm-hmm. of that particular scheme gave Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray a ton of trouble when they were mm-hmm. uh, still in Norman. So um, that's going to be a challenge. I don't mind the Spencer Rattler coming into the game. I thought, you know, if anything, he would have done all right, dinking and dunking it, but then the play calling still didn't change there. Um, The Mike Woods, no call, absolute no call on the pass interference probably could have sparked something, but it really shut that down. And I don't know, at that point, it felt like Lincoln was just trying to nail Jello to a wall. I mean, did it, it, it wasn't like Caleb Williams was doing anything at that point. So who cares really? I, I don't know if I really like the decision to to bench Caleb for Spencer. I mean, especially given the fact that Caleb was put back in the game in the fourth quarter. Um, to me, the only reason that Caleb should have been taken out of the game was, you know, if he was injured, couldn't throw the football. We know he got his hand stepped on. And, you know, I, I could see him on the sidelines, you know, even from – from the stands, you know, he was having a tough time, you know, gripping the football. They were checking his hand. It seemed like every time he came off the field. So, you know, let's not forget, OU wasn't get, getting blown out or anything when the switch was made. The score was 10 to 7. And, you know, while Caleb wasn't as sharp as we've seen him so far this year, he still had the capability to hurt you with a, with his legs. And that was something that Baylor had to respect. And, you know, what what he did on the first possession that Spencer was – or what, what we did see on the first possession that Spencer was out there – Baylor blitzed Oklahoma, put more guys in the box uh, because you've got an immobile Spencer Rattler. He was basically a sitting duck back there. And, you know, on, on the third down of that first possession, there was a running lane for Spencer to escape out of and potentially pick up a first down. And he got tripped up by a defensive lineman, one arm, who's engaged with one of our offensive linemen. So I think Lincoln kind of panicked in that scenario maybe a little bit because the offense wasn't play was playing so poorly. But you got to let Caleb battle through it. It's a field goal game. It's 10 to 7. And he's a true freshman. We knew there were going to be some growing pains within this with, with this guy this season. But don't ruin his confidence or meth, mess with his psyche because he, he made a couple of mistakes and your team was only down 10-7 to 7 at this point. I do want to revisit that play here in a minute on Spencer Rattler because I think it symbolizes some things about this team as a whole. We'll talk about that in a second. But um, defense was an interesting story on uh, mm-hmm. on Saturday. I think there were some people that were still really not pleased with the the performance there. And then there was a completely different segment of the crowd that was saying, Hey, they weren't the problem. And it's like, yeah, I guess. But I mean, they, what, what did Baylor rush for? Was it 300 yards? I think 297, 297. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with a converted linebacker. Um, cause linebackers are known for being, you know, typically the fastest guys on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bohannon, he had the one interception, but otherwise he pretty much beat us pretty good. He didn't do anything too flashy, but, um, we didn't force him to, to do anything really negative either. And so just felt like this defense, there were, and there were certain plays where they just got dragged essentially, and it <laughs> was a slow burn. So it wasn't, you know, a quick strike that made the defense look bad, but it really, um, it really dragged us down in the second half. 
Well, speaking of converted linebackers, there's or converted running backs. Um, you know, there was a running back playing linebacker for Oklahoma on Saturday, and Brian Osmo, I thought, played the best game of his career. Uh, you know, it was very noticeable those stretches when Brian wasn't in the game. Why he le- ever left the field, you know, in crunch time when a play needed to be made, I'm simply not sure. But you know, I thought defensively, you know, they played really, really well in stretches. But for the most part, they played the first three quarters of the game really well. You know, defensive line. Baylor finally figured out that if you get OU's front seven flowing one way, your running back can take three to four steps, cut it back the other way, and OU wasn't going to have anybody containing the backside edge. So we saw Abram Smith and, you know, Jerry Bohannon take advantage of that multiple times. And, you know, Adam, it seems like we talk about this week in and week out, but tackling continues to be a problem, especially for the guys in the secondary. I mean, DTY, Pat Fields, two veteran guys, played a lot of football at Oklahoma. They had a few really bad reps that led to a lot of big plays for Baylor, particularly in the second half. And, you know, Justin Broyles didn't hear his name called a lot. You know, this was another example of the defensive backs giving up big plays instead of actually creating and being the ones making the big plays for this defense. So, Adam, you know, Grinch always preaches depth and rotating guys. So why are we seeing rotations everywhere but the secondary? Latrell McCutcheon didn't play. Billy Bowman didn't play a single snap on Saturday on the defensive side of the football. But, you know, Adam, we can nitpick this all we want. The bottom line is the defense forced two turnovers in the red zone. They played three really good quarters of football, and they were the reason Oklahoma was in this game as long as they were. I mean, like I said, it was still 10-7 to until 13 minutes and 13 seconds left in the fourth quarter. So you've got to give the defense credit because the final score could and should have probably been a lot worse if they were playing a quarterback that could throw the football better than Gary Bohannon. Yeah, I agree. Like the defense was fine, I guess. <laughs> You'd still like to see them do a lot more. Giving up 300 yards rushing on the ground is is not great. Yeah, um, yeah the score wasn't super high, um, but I I still think there's a lot of room for improvement there. And you point out a good uh, you know uh, point there on Alex Grinch and the fact that he's not rotating the guys at his position. He's the only guy or the only position group that's still starting, I think, completely Mike Stoops players. Everywhere else on the defense, it's Alex Grinch guys. And I don't know why that's the case. I mean, it wasn't like we were loaded at safety when Mike Stoops left and they just can't get the younger guys on the field. So I don't know yeah. why his recruits, the guys that he's brought in aren't developed at this point to get mm-hmm. some level of playing time and rotation um, because that's a weakness for us. Um, there's just, there's just consistent weaknesses across the board and you know, yeah, we're, we're finally getting healthy, which is great because we're going to need that, that defense to really come back and play like they did in the first couple of games of the year, because and this offense is, is going to have a tall ask to get past Iowa state and Oklahoma state. Um, potentially twice if things go our way. Well, Adam, it's head scratching too. You mentioned from a from the safety position and the lack of rotation. There's no rotation whatsoever. And, you know, guys like Bryson Washington and Billy Bowman, two guys that OU was ecstatic about the fact that they were able to flip them and pull them away from Texas, they're still not playing over the likes of Justin Broyles and Patrick Fields. So I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, Grinch always talks about you know, you've got to practice well on Tuesday and Wednesday. We've got to be able to trust you in order to put you out there. But, I mean, you and I know as well as anybody, Adam, I mean, there's some guys that just aren't very good practice players. But once the lights come on, once the whistle's blown, you know, they go out there and they make plays and they put yourself in a position to win. So, uh, I, I don't know what to think. I think we're kind of too late in the season where we can really expect any drastic changes to be made at this point. But, like you said, you've got Iowa State and Oklahoma State, the two other best teams in the Big 12 Conference this season. and 
like I said, it's not going to get any easier whatsoever, and the defense is going to have to play extremely well because you're facing the uh, the other two best defenses in the conference and uh, two that are ranked in the top 15 nationally in a lot of categories. We had a tweet that has uh, basically been going viral over the last three or four hours or so. Um, if you're not following us on Twitter, uh, find us at the Mainline Pod One. Basically, it's just a, a a quote tweet of the video, essentially of one of I think it was a third and like fifteen or so uh, in the fourth quarter. Yeah, it was it was an opportunity for this defense to get off the field and for the offense to have at least a chance at making a little bit of a comeback. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the basically Baylor on third and long decides to run a give up play hand the ball off to the running back. Perrion Winfrey misses him about seven yards short of the sticks. And then Pat Fields gets in on the action, has the guy wrapped up probably four yards short of the sticks, but can't bring him down. And then we see a lot of OU defenders standing around watching while all the Baylor players come in and just absolutely push him across the sticks. Uh, Justin Broyles is standing around. Awesome. is standing around. Um, lots of guys just standing around Waybu. watching. Aguebu, yeah, just tons of guys. Aguebu got dragged for about four yards earlier in the game. So just a ton of guys dragged around. It's it's created a lot of conversation around this strength and conditioning staff. I think you have some thoughts here. It, is it time to make a move from Benny Wiley? I want to be very careful with the way that I answer this question, Adam, because like I said, we've won six straight Big 12 championships, and you know we've been in the college football playoff four times. There haven't been but maybe four to five programs in college football that have been as dominant as we have during the time that Benny Wiley's been here. But Adam, the problem that we've run into during each of our last four playoff appearances is the same problem that has rendered its ugly head time and time again this season. If a team decides that they want to be the tougher opponent and go into this game with that mentality that they can bully Oklahoma, they can do it. We saw it on Saturday. I never thought I would see the day where Baylor would physically dominate Oklahoma in the trenches and in all three phases of the game. Adam, you and I can both remember the days, and we talked about it in the offseason, you and I can both remember the days where when a team walked into a stadium to play Oklahoma, they knew they were going to get their ass handed to them. Just like right now, when teams line up against Georgia and Alabama, they know that the next four quarters of football is going to be hell for them and they're going to be sore for the next week. That's how it used to be. There used to be a grittiness, uh, a toughness, a warrior's mentality in our players here at Oklahoma where they know I'm going to dominate this guy across from me every single snap. I'm going to help him up and then I'm going to dominate him again. That doesn't exist anymore at the University of Oklahoma and it starts in the off season with your strength and conditioning program. Other than the head coach, there is not a more important person in your program than your strength and conditioning coach. He's the guy that gets to spend the most amount of time with the players inside your program. He's the guy that builds those guys up mentally and physically. I love Benny Wiley. I go to church with the man. I think he's a really good person, but I don't know if right now, and again, i got to be careful on how I phrase this, I don't know if right now he is helping to build the right kind of culture we need for our football program players missing tackles, players shying away from contact, linemen getting pushed around instead of being the one that dishes it out. That warrior mentality that I talked about, I'm not seeing it anywhere. Down the road in College Station, you watch their defense this year, you watch the big guys in the trenches for the Aggies, we ran that special that strength and conditioning coach off because we either didn't want to pay him, we didn't like the way he was doing things, his methods were wrong, maybe a little too hard. I'd sure like to have a little bit of that back here in Norman right now. We're a soft football team right now, 
for and forget the national championship, Adam. We will never compete in the SEC week in and week out for a full season until we change the culture and the mentality of this football program. And it starts in the offseason with the strength and conditioning staff. I think you bring up some really good points there, and I don't know that I necessarily disagree with very many of them, but I think it's really hard for a fan like me that hasn't played at that level to come out and say, it's the strength and conditioning program just because I'm not a part of that. I don't see the numbers. I don't see the workouts. um, I don't know all the different responsibilities that he has, but I think there are three essential aspects if you're going to look at, okay, is this team physical and strong enough? One is strength and conditioning. Yeah, they have to be strong enough. Second is they have to be motivated. That's that's partly Benny Wiley, but in these types of scenarios, that's all the position coaches too. And then thirdly, they have to be put in the right position to actually use the strength that they have. And I think uh, Teddy mentioned this on the podcast. He had a really good point about how the defense really is just not in position um, to meet these guys head on in a lot of cases. That's where you see a guy like David Aguebu, 6'3", 245 pounds, get dragged for four yards. Mm-hmm. That should never happen. And too often it does where we have guys that, you know, make contact and then we fall backwards. They gain another three yards just by, you know, falling down essentially. And so um, there's all of those, you know, things baked into the the process there. And you're right. Like it is a soft program. Um, And we've got a lot of things that we've got to work on to before we even get to the SEC. (laughs) Part of the reason that I'm like, I don't know if I if I love that move a whole lot, because I mean, we're gonna have to grow up real quick. Mm-hmm. And yes, iron sharpens iron, but man, we should be there already. Like we sh- if Clemson went into the SEC, you know, prior to this year, <laughs> this year, they've got some major issues, but if they went into yeah. the SEC, um, even this year, I mean, their defense is physical, you know, they're, they're a strong defense there. So mm-hmm. they would have no problems on that side of the ball, but man, we've got, a, we've got a long way to go, um, to get there. You know, Gabe and Teddy, they caught a lot of flack in the preseason about their opinions on basically the same thing that we're talking about right now. And I think Teddy was kind of the one that led to the discussion on this and talking about how, you know, there is a uh, a big contrast in the way that our strength and conditioning program is right now compared to the way it was when he was here back in the early 2000s. And honestly, you can kind of see the differences and, you know, you talked about the the, the motivation, the, the confidence, the mentality of this football team. And it just kind of seems like we're we're either not in the right position to make plays or you've got guys like Perrion Winfrey, who's supposed to be the biggest, baddest dude on this football team. He plays too high and he gets pushed around by the interior offensive lineman. You've got David Aguebu, like you said, 6'3", 245 pounds. I don't know if he's if he was thinking, OK, Pat Fields has got him wrapped up. He's just going to fall down five yards short of the first down marker. No, go hit him. Go stop him. Want to be the guy that makes the play, that gets your defense off the field and gives your offense an opportunity to stage a comeback. Like you said, Baylor was giving up. They were conceding, hey, we don't think we're going to get this first down. We're just going to hand it off, and we trust our defense that they're going to be able to stop your offense from scoring points. So, But but like I said, I, I don't mean this. I don't, I don't want to paint the, a picture of, like, we need to get rid of Benny Wiley because, like I said, I think he's a really good guy. And, you know, you look at, the, you look at our players – They've got the size and stature. You know, they've got the muscles. They look good in a uniform, but you almost kind of have to wonder what's going on behind the scenes in the offseason. To me, it's that mental toughness makeup that this team is lacking right now. It's it's all 11 guys, specifically on the defensive side of the football. Every single one of those guys needs to be the one that says, hey, I want to make that play. Even if I'm not the first one that got there to, to start the tackle, I'm going to be the one that comes and cleans it up. So, Again, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fingers that we can point at different people, but like I said, outside of the head coach, 
the strength conditioning staff is the most important one for a football program. And I think that some changes, you got to start looking at that. And that starts with Lincoln. You know, he's the captain of this ship. He's got to figure out what he wants to do and how he can get this football team to that next level. Yeah. I mean, there are some hard questions that Lincoln's going to have to answer. Uh, maybe not during the season, but in the off season for sure, especially with that SEC transition looming and just lo- taking a look at, you know, coaches that have been with their program. This is Lincoln's fifth year as the head coach at OU. Mm-hmm. If you go back and look at head coaches who have won a national championship at their school, uh, let's just take a look. We know Bob Stoops, the very famously second year as a coach, uh, Nick Saban, year three at Alabama, Les Miles, year three at LSU, Jimbo, year four, Urban, year three, uh, Larry Coker, year one, Jim Trussell, year two, Edo, year four. I mean, I could keep going on and on. It's, mm-hmm. it's mainly guys winning within their first four years. There's only two exceptions if you go back over the last 20 years or so. Um, and that would be Dabo Sweeney in year eight, who made a major change after his team basically got run off the field by West Virginia in the Orange Bowl, going out and getting yep. Brent Venables, completely yep. changed that team there. And then Mac Brown in year seven at Texas. So is Lincoln Riley more of a Dabo Sweeney? Or is he, I don't know. I mean, at some point you get too stale at one place and it's tough to make those changes because you're so close. I hate saying it because that's what Lincoln says, but we are really close as a program to being the next Georgia or, you know, an Alabama level of type of program. You do have to recruit better, but it's really hard when you're, when you're so close to say, this is the one area I'm going to make a hard decision to get rid of you know, so-and-so or make some type of philosophical change or bring in an offense coordinator or whatever the solution might be. But that's really hard to say, Hey, when we're so close, you don't want to screw up something that is kind of working just to try something new, essentially. And that's kind of the hard part too, because like we said, you know, we've won this conference for six straight years. I mean, we're, we've been the most dominant pro, uh, program in this conference, you know, I guess since what the, the early two thousands. So I, I can understand from a coaching perspective, like, how we're doing things right now has gotten us to this point where we've won six of these things in a row. We've made the playoff four times in the last seven years, but at the same time too, the standard, and again, we'll touch on this here a little bit. And I I guess we may, I I guess we can even kind of do it a little bit now when talking about, is this season a failure and are kind of fans overreacting after just one loss. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a complete failure yet by any means, you know, we can still win the big 12 championship, we still have an outside shot of making the playoff, you know, but that's not even on my radar at this point, Adam. And, you know, I, I got multiple text messages. I wanted to tell you about this. I got multiple text messages Saturday afternoon from some buddies of mine that are friends of different teams. And they were basically saying, you know, by getting on Facebook and Twitter, social media, saying how spoiled our fan base is for having a complete meltdown after losing our first game in the last 18 that we've played. So I kind of started thinking to myself, you know, are we a spoiled fan base that throws a temper tantrum anytime we lose a game? And my answer, I I don't think we're spoiled. We have a standard unlike 95% of other college football programs around the country. And that standard is not being lived up to at the University of Oklahoma right now. And Adam, we talk about it all the time. You're the one that brings us up more more time than not. What's the objective of this program? It's not beating Texas and Oklahoma and winning a conference championship. It's winning a national title, something that this program hasn't done in the last 21 years. So we're not spoiled. We just have high expectations year in and year out. And when you haven't done something in over two decades at a place like the University of Oklahoma in a year 2021 where it was laid out perfectly for you to compete for a championship, 
The fan base, yes, is going to be upset when you go on the road after a bye week and lose to a Baylor team that ran for over 295 yards on you. So it, I, I'm not pressing the, I'm not pressing the panic button, but you can't, you can't just skate by and think, oh, well, you know, a lot of people are, at least we're not the University of Texas or we've only lost one game. It's all going to be okay. There's a standard here at Oklahoma. It's about competing for national championships. You got to make the changes that are going to put yourself in a position to compete with Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State. This team's not it right now. Exactly. I mean, if they want to call us spoiled, so be it. Like, we're not Michigan. We're not happy to just be relevant and try to win the Big Ten or maybe mm-hmm. beat Ohio State. There's maybe three or four programs in the entire country that have the standard that OU does. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of sick of people that are just, you know, other OU fans maybe don't have that same standard. Maybe they're just not as into it as I am. Uh, but this is the longest gap between championships that we've had as a university since before our very first national championship back in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Like, think about that for a second. It feels like 2000 wasn't that long ago, but in reality, it, it really is. And here we are sitting 20 years later, 20 failed seasons, in my opinion. Yeah, there's been some fun moments. There's been some great players that have come through, but the objective is to win the championship. And we haven't been close since 2008. We haven't played for a national championship since 2008. That was 13 years ago. We're close and in 17, close. We're close in 17, but close, uh, but no cigar, you know? So, mm-hmm. and the frustrating aspect is, you know, when Lincoln came to town in 2015, you felt the recruiting get better. In 17, you thought, man, like this team feels like just on the verge of the next steps. And it felt like the recruiting continually was slowly getting better. You know, we were able to move on from Mike Stoops. Mm-hmm. It felt like things were continually getting better. And now it feels like a slow backslide or at best, you know, a plateau essentially. And it's like, man, you got to get over the hump. You got to at least progress and show that you're getting closer to a national championship. Yeah, there's still a path to the playoffs. It's still possible. OU has a lot of, you know, really good teams in front of them to beat and to rise in the rankings. Um, There's always chaos in college football. It always happens inevitably. But I've been harping on it from day one. Like you have to set yourself up for success in the playoff. Getting to the playoffs is not the objective. Winning the playoff is the objective. That means when the games are playing in your backyard in the Cotton Bowl at Jerry World, you need to be in that venue and you need to not be playing Alabama and not be playing Georgia and preferably not playing Ohio State. You need to play the weakest team in the country that makes the playoffs in your backyard. And then... Yes, you're going to play a great team in the national championship game, but you take your chances at that point. You, mm-hmm. you say, hey, we've gotten there. We've got down to one game. We're going to give it our best shot at that point, even if you run into the buzzsaw of an LSU or a Georgia or whoever it might be. But if you don't set yourself up for success in the regular season and then in the preseason, the offseason to get you there, like, oh, it's just so frustrating that, you know, it, this program just feels like it's on a plateau. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when, you know, you get complacent and things start to backslide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I think that that's one of the reasons why, because we've been so close for out of the last seven years and you can throw 2008 in as well. It's the little things that separate Oklahoma from the likes of Georgia and Alabama and Clemson that we've seen with, you know, Deshaun White and Trevor Lawrence and things like that. So OU has to, and starts with Lincoln Riley, OU has to find either the right ingredients or he has to tweak something 
that can get Oklahoma back up to that level where they can compete year in and year out with the likes of those pro- with those programs that I just listed. So, Adam, we've talked about this a little bit more. One thing that I do want to ask you about is uh, um, the unfortunate news that happened um, in the second half on on Saturday, and that was Caleb Kelly. Um, his career kind of coming to an end. So I'm not sure what the TV broadcast, I've seen a lot of things on social media that the TV actually cut away from that feed whenever it was going on. So just kind of what are your thoughts on that and Caleb Kelly as a whole? Man, it was a bummer because I I watched on TV and had no idea what happened until I think the next day when he posted it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, But man, a guy that, man, it just hurts to see that happen. And he really wasn't contributing a whole lot. Um, honestly, this season, he kind of lost a step, but the dude made more big plays in probably a, the few appearances that he was actually out there in his Oklahoma career than pretty much anyone else. So mm-hmm. I love that we at least have, you know, some really big moments that we'll look back on and remember him very fondly. And, um, who knows, maybe uh, he's been here forever. Maybe he'll, uh, he'll settle down <laughs> Norman if he hasn't already, but, <laughs> um, I would love to see him go on and do some big things. Yeah. I mean, your, your heart, just absolutely breaks for that kid to see what happened to him on Saturday. I mean, you could kind of tell watching the way he walked off the field. He's pretty emotional. It almost kind of looked like he knew immediately um, as the trainers were kind of, you know, tending to him what had happened and what it was kind of setting in for him. And, you know, then he tweets out after the game, this is not just his season is over, but his career, he's played his final game in an Oklahoma uniform. And we joke at him all the time, you know, about this guy being the grandfather of the program, the Perry Ellis of the college football world. Uh, a guy who's been here for what feels like seven or eight years. But, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Caleb's career at Oklahoma, you know, while it was nothing kind of like what he or anybody maybe expected it to look like when he stepped foot on campus all the way back in, that's right, 2016. But it's no doubt that this guy made his fair share of big plays throughout his time. I mean, we're going to always remember him from his performance in the 2016 Sugar Bowl, um, you know, the scoop and score against TCU in the Big 12 championship game, the West Virginia strips, strip and score game. Uh, and then this season, which I think honestly might be the play of the year, his huge play on special teams when he stripped the ball away from Xavier Worthy, that was the play that I think kind of you know, helped, I believe, helped propel Oklahoma to win that football game. So Caleb had a big impact on this program on the field, but I think he'll be remembered by Sooner Nation even more for what he did off the field. When you look at, when you ask yourself who you choose to be a representative of not just OU football, but the University of Oklahoma as a whole, I don't think you're going to find a better ambassador than Caleb Kelly. So this guy's going to succeed in life no matter what he does and, you know, wish him the best and speed recovery. Caleb Kelly was there as a player at OU when you, me, and Corbin all started working in the athletic department at OU, and he was there when we left, and he's mm-hmm. still there now. So yeah. that's how long he's been there. Um, but, uh, but yeah. God almighty, that's crazy, crazy. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a tough loss, um, obviously going to 9-1 on the year. OU still has all their goals out there in front of them from a Big 12 conference standpoint. They control their destiny. But we'll we'll kind of see what uh, how that plays out because it's going to be a fun and exciting next couple of weeks. But let's get to around the country in college football. Adam, touch and break on what's going on on the national landscape this past weekend. Uh, Ole Miss defeats Texas A&M. Really good win for Lane Kiffin, Matt Corral. Um, Texas A&M, they kind of had everything laid out there in front of them, having the head-to-head win over uh, Alabama. They were praying for an Alabama loss to finish out the regular season that maybe they could slide in and represent the SEC West against Georgia in the, in the championship game. But uh, tough loss for Jimbo Fisher. And then do we even want to talk about Dan Mullen's team hanging, getting 52 points hung on him by Samford? Not Stanford, not S-T-A-N, Samford. 
scoring even, 52 even Stanford would be pretty pretty bad this year <laughs> I mean man he's lost that program I, I just no other way to really explain it there uh it, it sure seems like uh he's gonna get uh get driven out to the tarmac and just left there um Lane Kiffin style and there's a ton of openings, a ton of good openings in college football this year. Yep, so for we'll, sure. we'll see how the carousel spins. Um, but, uh, man, just not a good showing from there. Um, I know next you, you mentioned the uh, the Big Ten there. I think that's shaping up really interesting there with between Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State. Penn State's still a solid program, and they've got to play uh, Michigan State in the finale. And then – just slowly creeping up over in the there in the West is Wisconsin with a really, really good defense and their offense really hasn't had to do much lately, but you know, put them in a one game scenario. You never know. I wouldn't be surprised if the big 10 just plays themselves out of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me either. I mean, you're looking at um, Ohio state, they've got to play Michigan state this weekend. They've got to make the trip up to Ann Arbor to take on Michigan. So uh, it's either going to cannibalize itself or either Michigan or Michigan state is going to represent that conference in the, in the college football playoff. But uh, no, thinking about, you know, more here locally in the, in the big 12 conference. I mean, do we, what can we say about the University of Texas? I mean, the the fight in Sarkeesians, man. The they've now lost five in a row for the first time since 1956. And Adam, I don't know how. If you're Texas, I don't know how you're not entertaining the thought of possibly moving on from Sark. I mean, uh, you've lost five in a row. You just lost at home to Kansas. The stadium was half full on Saturday. You've got recruits in your own stands that you are hosting on official visits laughing at you and recording on their phones as Kansas wins on the two-point conversion in overtime. So uh, I knew there were going to be some growing pains with Sark, but my God. Well, you know, the best uh, recipe for a bounce back here is a long trip to Morgantown to play a tough West Virginia team. <laughs> yeah. um, man, um, it that that helped a little bit Saturday night to see, uh, to see oh, yeah. Texas lose to Kansas and if you know we're sitting here going man i don't know what it is necessarily exactly that OU needs to fix think about what texas is going through they're like man nothing is working mm-hmm. and i don't necessarily know that sark is the problem i mean the dude's been there for what 10 games it's it's hard to really say it's necessarily him the program's just dysfunctional and when they slide they slide hard um, now Chris Del Conte did come out today with a letter of support in, in favor of Sarkeesian, which if you want to turn the ship around, you kind of have to stick with him. Um, we thought it was kind of a strange hire when it came out because it was like, really him? Like, yeah, he's, he's at Alabama. Yeah. They have a great offense, but yeah. we've seen this guy as a head coach and it was pretty average. Well, Chris Del Conte, he also put out kind of a letter of endorsement a couple weeks before he fired Tom Herman. So, uh, but dude, there is a very realistic chance they've got on the road at uh, Morgantown against West Virginia. Then they, got, then they got to play Kansas State in the season finale. No B. John Robinson to close out the year. I think Josh Thompson, their best defensive back, he's also done for the season. They can't figure things out offensively. So I think it's a very good possibility that Texas doesn't make a bowl game this year. And you know, I, I you've got to give Sark some more time. I mean, he kind of had the comment uh, yesterday, I believe it was, that you could potentially see 33 new scholarship players. So. Um, I think that we can expect a huge roster overturn, if that's the right word to use, um, th- this offseason. Texas is going to look like a completely different team uh, from a Jimmy's and Joe's standpoint going into next season. But, no, it's it's crazy what's going on in Austin. And, yeah, I went to bed with a little bit 
a little bit more of a smile on Saturday night after watching what the Jayhawks did. But uh, elsewhere in the conference, Iowa State falls thanks to a 62-yard field goal from the Red Raiders and Texas Tech. So um, that's well-deserved, too. Texas Tech was in control for much of that game, and Iowa Mm -hmm. State just, you know, slowly came back. But um, good for the Red Raiders. They do have some talent down there. Mm -hmm. Is it? OU's second best win at this point is Texas Tech. It's it's certainly looking like it. It's definitely not Texas. So yeah, I don't, I don't like saying that, but <laughs> might be. And uh, yeah, just down the, just up the road in Stillwater. I mean, we thought that TCU after knocking off Baylor, Chandler Moore's kind of his coming out party. We thought that they could go up there and maybe push Oklahoma State a little bit, and Oklahoma State runs them in Barry Sanders style right out of Stillwater on on Saturday night. So Oklahoma State, man, I hate to say it. And I had my doubts about this team, especially after the first three weeks of the season, the the performance against Boise State. I didn't think that this was going to be a good football team whatsoever. And sad and or odd enough, they've got probably a top five defense in this country. And Spencer Sanders is playing really, really well. As long as he doesn't turn the football over with what they're doing in the running game and that defense holding opponents to, I think it's under what, 16 a game. Oklahoma State's a problem, dude. And we got to go there in two weeks. OSU scares the crap out of me. And I like never say that. Clip that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at, at this point, if you're an OU fan, yes, things are, are bad. We're coming off a loss. We could look at it pretty differently if we go out and, and beat Iowa State even by one possession. But, man, like you look at that and you're like, man, well, I guess our path to victory is Mike Gundy just goes into a shell like he does every Bedlam game and is way too conservative. Um, maybe Spencer Sanders uh, turns the ball over, but he he hasn't been doing that lately. So mm-hmm. that that's scary. Uh, I and, and the fact that you look at that and go, hey, even if you go to Stillwater and win, yeah, turn around and play that same team again in Arlington the next week. Oh mm-hmm. man, that, that that defense. I mean, I, I we've talked about it before, but it just baffles my mind that teams like OSU and Iowa State and Kansas State that have much, much, uh, no, no shame on this. They're going, but like, they're not the same type of player that OU is recruiting mm-hmm. and they consistently have better defenses than we do. Yeah. seems like we've kind of been saying that a lot over the last couple of seasons, even though OU's defense has gotten a lot better since the end of the Mike Stoops era and Alex Grinch has done a really, really good job, but it is kind of crazy. The fact that you've got teams like Oklahoma state, Iowa state that are made up primarily of three stars and maybe that's a four star every now and again, and they are playing as a unit, really, really good football on that on that side. So, but no, it, it's it's going to be a big one this weekend, week eleven or week twelve, I should say, in the Big Twelve. Iowa State traveling on the road, take on Oklahoma. Oklahoma win, you still control your destiny to make the Big Twelve championship. And Adam, honestly, a sneaky good matchup uh, going on up in Manhattan. Uh, Baylor traveling to take on K State, and K State is one of the hottest teams in the conference right now. I believe they're sitting at seven three. Uh, seven and three on the year, maybe eight and three. But uh, if Baylor goes on the road there and loses to K State, and Oklahoma can find a way to knock off the Cyclones, it doesn't matter what happens at Bedlam in two weeks. It's it guarantees uh, Bedlam in Arlington for the Big Twelve Championship. And Baylor is a one point underdog in this game. Mm-hmm. Go Cats! Go Cats! We're what what time is that game on Saturday? Uh, I have no uh, idea. As we look uh, it up right now. I mean, obviously, you got to take care of visiting against Iowa State at 11, but it would be there. If Oklahoma can find a way to win on Saturday morning, there will be a. It is a 4 30 kickoff on FS1. 4 30? Yeah. I thought you were going to say Big 12 plus with a time like that. Yeah. That would be appropriate. 
If I, Oklahoma I, I, can I, find a way to win at 11 a.m. on Saturday, you will see a lot of OU people chanting uh, EMAW. There will be a lot of K-State fades here in the state of Oklahoma. So, But that's a big one. Texas going on the road to West Virginia. I don't know what's going to happen there. I'm sorry, Sark. you got to go up there and play them. Coming off of a loss, or I should say five straight losses. And then OSU, man, going out to Texas Tech, a Red Raider team that just knocked off Iowa State. Do you give Tech any shot at pulling the upset or – Oklahoma Absolutely. State, uh, the sport is still college football the last time I checked. Lubbock at night in a trap game before playing Bedlam. Absolutely, I give them a chance. Hmm. I don't think it'll happen, but I mean, <laughs> I, Texas Tech, it, yeah, they're traditionally like a not so great team over the last couple of years, but I mean, Iowa State went in there and I, I think Iowa State, they scare me a lot. I, I guess we're going to get into that now with the preview of mm-hmm. Iowa State, but um, there's certainly some things to be concerned about with them coming into Norman. Yeah, when, when kind of looking, we were talking about how, you know, in-depth we wanted to talk about this Iowa State football team. And, you know, for the most part, there's been a lot of battles with this squad between Matt Campbell and Lincoln Riley's groups over the past few years. And it kind of feels like the same guys, when we look at uh, Iowa State's step chart, it seems like OU's been playing them four or five times in the past couple of years. But, uh, no, a really, really good football team. Their record doesn't show it. They are 6-4 and four on the year, 4-3 and three in Big 12 Conference play. But this is still a team. Uh, Adam, they're scoring over 32 points on offense. Their defense is ranked number three uh, in the Big 12 and giving up just a hair over 20 a game. And, you know, we've seen this team enough in the past couple of years. We know who the Jimmy and Joes are going to be. So kind of talk to us a little about Iowa State's offense. And if you're Alex Grinch, what do you try to do to stop uh, Brock Purdy, Brees Hall, and Charlie Kolar? I think you put Buki on Charlie Kolar. Um, <laughs> fly, fly him back in. You know, there he's you a guy that um, I've kind of been paying attention to a little bit this year. We all thought he was the shoe-in for the uh, Big 12 tight end, um, you know, all, all Big 12 there. And maybe he still is. Um, he's been a little bit um, quieter this year up until the game against Texas Tech. Uh, before that, he had two total touchdowns on the year. He had never topped uh, more than six receptions in a game. And then goes down to Lubbock, has eight catches, 76 yards, two touchdowns. So he's peaking right at the perfect time. I think Justin Broyles uh, will have a fun time trying to guard him. Um, It'll be interesting to see if we can maybe shuffle around with Woody Washington back and healthy. Let's get Key Lawrence into that nickel spot, um, be a much better matchup against uh, Mm -hmm. a Kolar. So would love to see that. But, man, Iowa State, like you look at Baylor and what, what they did to us last year with I mean, they have some good players, but compared to Iowa State's skill talent, that's a step up uh, when you yeah. get it to a guy like a Brock Purdy, a Brees mm-hmm. Hall, a Charlie Kolar, um, and then Xavier Hutchinson. That dude is going to – he might torch us. Um, I mean, if Brock Purdy can get him the ball, which of anybody, I'm like, man, Brock Purdy is, is not my guy. I'm not super high on him. Mm-hmm. But if he can get Xavier uh, Hutchinson the ball, uh, it, it's going to be a long day for this defense. They, they need to come out and play. Well, Brock Purdy, he's been playing pretty well this season. I mean, he kind of started off a little bit slow. You know, he'll want to erase that uh, Iowa game film from his memory for the rest of his life. But, you know, he's completing over 73% of his passes, just under 250 yards a game. His touchdown to interception ratio is actually not bad, 15 to 6. So he's playing really, really well, um, especially on the back half of the season. And, dude, you mentioned it, Xavier Hutchinson. He's actually leading the Big 12 in receiving yards this year. And we all saw, we watched a good portion of that Iowa State-Texas game Xavier Hutchinson's a problem. And in our secondary right now that I don't have a ton of confidence in, especially in the passing game, uh, could be a pretty big feeding day for Xavier on Saturday in, in Norman. But 
Um, just like with anything else, it starts with Brees Hall, man. I mean, he's he's uh, second in the conference right now, averaging 117 yards a game. He's got 16 touchdowns on the year. I cannot wait for him and Charlie Kolar to graduate. Um, Charlie Kolar is giving fits to every single time he's played against OU. Um, and that's going to be kind of the big thing that I'm going to be watching for when OU's on the field defensively Saturday. Who's going to be playing nickelback position? Who's going to be in charge of covering him? I think you hit the nail on the head. Now that Woody Washington, I thought pretty, played pretty well for the most part at Baylor. And it, it seemed like Baylor didn't really try to attack his side of the field a lot when he was in there. So if you can get Graham and Woody as your two corners, use that bigger body type, that bigger frame guy in Key Lawrence. Put him over at the nickelback position where he can compete uh, both from a size and an athletic standpoint with a guy like Charlie Kolar, um, who down the field has been a matchup nightmare. Uh, for Alex Grinch's defense the past couple of seasons. And flipping it over to the defensive side of the football for Iowa State, Adam, they got a really, really good player in Will McDonald. This, uh, I guess he's what uh, he's got 10 sacks on the year leading the Big 12. Um, or not leading the Big 12. I think he's top three in the Big 12 in sacks this year. But Will McDonald, fantastic player, man. Yeah, I mean, there's great players across the board on the Iowa State defense. But offensively, like with the pedigree that Lincoln Riley has, it's all about what OU is going to be able to do and how is he going to call this game. They're going to come out and try to do the same schemes that Baylor did against us. And Iowa State, like we mentioned earlier, they kind of invented that in a way. Mm -hmm. And so is Lincoln going to learn from that? Is he going to come out better prepared? Um, We'll see. I mean, don't abandon the run. You know, put the easy plays in front of your younger quarterback and put him in, in a place where he can succeed. That's what I need to see from this offense and basically from Lincoln Riley. Give Marcus Major a carry or two. Who? Just, just saying, Marcus Major. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean they're they're a really good defense. But when you look at it, man, I mean the three games that they've lost in the Big Twelve this year, even though they're only giving up on average twenty points a game, they gave up thirty one to Baylor, thirty eight to West Virginia, and forty one to Texas Tech. So while they do play that umbrella type defense, you know three down linemen drop eight back into coverage, force you uh, to kind of dink and dive down the field, not give anything up over the top. Um, we saw Caleb Williams have a little bit of difficulty against, uh, against Baylor. And now he's going to be going up against kind of the architect of this umbrella defense, uh, in Iowa state. So no, it's going to be, it's going to be big for them. We talked about Anton Harrison and Tyrese Robinson, the tackles, they're going to have their hands full with Will McDonald. And, uh, you got Mike Rose, the reigning defensive player of the year in the big 12, who's leading the team with 61 tackles this season. Um, you got to find a way to run the football. I know Iowa State's only given up about 110 rushing yards a game, but you got to find a way to set the tone early. Um, and yeah, it, it's going to be a very, very big challenge on Saturday against this Iowa State team. And um, not, I not very confident in Oklahoma on Saturday. And I'll save my pick for the end. Yeah, we'll do picks here in a second. But before we get to that, we do have to cover beers and bets. The leader in the clubhouse is out uh, this evening. So we'll run through his picks really quickly. He's, uh, you know, going to the same well that's been uh, really, you know, doing really well for him with the exception of last week. He's got Kansas at TCU, TCU to cover the the 22 point spread there. Uh, Going back again, Iowa State plus four and a half at OU. That's been a good one for Corbin all year. Wake Forest plus four at Clemson. Pretty interesting game there. And then a big G5 matchup that I think a lot of people will be watching. SMU to cover 11 and a half, or they're being given 11 and a half at Cincinnati. We'll see if they uh, can keep that one within uh, two scores there. Uh, Arkansas at Alabama. Alabama to cover the 20 and a half. Uh, Tyler, we'll, we'll start it off with you this evening. Who's your first pick? 
Well, for people that can't see that are listening to the podcast, um, the trophy's right here. The uh, first edition of the Beers and Bets trophy. I'm not sure we can actually... Uh, is it a, Are we allowed to give it out to somebody that wins, but they finish under 50% on their picks? Is that okay? I, 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 well, I guess we'll find out. But we'll have to look at the rule book. <laughs> pick, pick one for me. Uh, Texas traveling on the road to Morgantown, West Virginia. West Virginia favored by two and a half. Texas has the better team on paper, but, dude, they've lost five games in a row, and I'm not going to pick Texas until they prove me otherwise. So I've got the Mountain Winners in this one covering the two and a half against the Longhorns on Saturday. I told you guys privately that uh, I've had so many bad weeks in a row, basically guaranteed to go two and three or worse for like the last nine weeks straight. So to reverse that, I'm going to go pick the opposite of what I think going forward, at least for this week. (laughs) And if I go 0-5, I will be just kicking myself. But um, it was actually a harder exercise than I thought to go through, pick a game, and then choose the opposite. I kept Mm-hmm. trying to overthink things but uh we'll start off michigan at maryland i'm taking maryland to cover the 15 and a half here i think michigan's a pretty good team i really like what they have there and i don't think maryland's that great it is on the road it is before you know the the big game against ohio state but um uh, i guess i'll go with the opposite go terrapins <laughs> go terrapins yeah i mean at this point right now i mean i i should probably be following the same strategy at 25 33 and 2 for the year Uh, But no, pick number two for me. I'm going to the SEC, Arkansas, traveling out to Tuscaloosa to take on Alabama. Uh, Like you said, Alabama favored by 20 and a half in this one. Crimson Tide have won 13 in a row in this series by an average of 29 and a half points per game. And Alabama, with a win on Saturday, they they clinch their spot in the uh, SEC championship game against Georgia. So Arkansas has played a really tough schedule so far this year. I think Alabama kind of catches them in a good spot. And I expect Nick Saban's team to come out and play well. Uh, and cover the 20 and a half on Saturday. Corbin liked SMU to keep it close with Cincinnati. I agree with that, which means I'm picking the opposite of that. I'm <laughs> taking the Bearcats to cover 11 and a half. Nice. Nice. Uh, pick number three for me. We're going to, we can kind of fly through this Oklahoma state traveling on the road to Lubbock, take on the red Raiders. OSU favored by 10 and a half in this one. The Cowboys, Adam have allowed just tw- uh, 23 total points in a three-game win streak since losing to Iowa State uh, last month. So uh, I know Texas Tech, they did put up 41 against Iowa State a weekend ago. This is a different animal, Oklahoma State, coming into town this weekend. I don't expect them to look ahead to Bedlam next weekend, although, like you said, this is college football. Crazier things have happened. But uh, I think behind that running game and that defense, Oklahoma State covers the 10.5. Two really bad teams, South Florida at Tulane, who we uh, did beat at the beginning of the year, and we – Tried to prop well, up as a really good team. <laughs> they're they're terrible. They like one and nine. I think so. Yeah. So uh, I usually think that's going to be an ugly game, which means I will uh, take the green wave to cover the five. Nice. Moving on, pick number four for me: uh, an AAC matchup. Memphis travel or Memphis traveling to Houston. Cougars favored by nine and a half. Memphis has lost three of its last four and is zero and four against the spread on the road this season. Tigers have won five in a row in this series, but I think the Cougars actually put an end to that streak on Saturday. Houston covers the nine and a half, and we can slowly and slowly creep closer to that conference championship matchup between Cincinnati and Houston. Another game where I am in agreement with Corbin, Wake Forest and Clemson, which means I do pick the opposite here. Clemson minus four. I don't know how they're (laughs) going to be able to outscore the Demon Deacons, but I'm holding true to my strategy here. It's kind of crazy that uh, Wake Forest, a nine and one football team, is uh, actually the road underdog 
against a Clemson team that's struggling. But no, I, if I, I would be in complete agreement with you, I'd go with Clemson in this one as well. Uh, but to kind of round out my betting car, pick number five, Georgia Tech traveling up to South Bend, Indiana, to take on Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame's favored by 16 and a half. This one's kind of interesting. Georgia Tech's on a four-game losing streak, but they are 3-0 and against the spread as an underdog when the spread is 10 points or more. Don't ask me how I found that. But Notre Dame, however, has covered in five straight games. So I like the hot, the Irish at home this week to cover 16 and a half against the Yellow Jackets. We're not going to ask you how you found that out because your record's not worth uh, following there. So <laughs> neither is mine. Uh, I'm, I'm barely ahead of you here. Uh, my last pick, Michigan State at Ohio State. The spread is 19 points. I just don't see how Michigan State is that bad of a football team that Ohio State can really score um, and win by that many, which means since I'm picking the opposite, I'm taking the Buckeyes <laughs> to cover the 19 there. It's got to be tough in your household with that pick. Um, My household Ohio of one currently. Oh, so yeah. uh, well, let's let's jump into score predictions. Who you got, Tyler? Yeah, I mean, you would think in years past, Oklahoma coming off of a loss. Um they should dominate the next game no matter what, right? But uh, OU's been kind of skating by all season long. Uh, their 9-1 record, they should probably be about 6-4 and four, uh, based on the way that they played this year, but they found a way to win close games. But no, um, Iowa State, I talked to one of my uh, buddies, um, played football at Iowa State a little bit earlier today. He thinks that Iowa State's not going to be up for this game. They have nothing left to play for. But, Adam, I'm going to counter that argument in saying all those seniors – at Iowa State last year that lost to Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game that watched OU celebrate in Arlington, they came back this year, super seniors, specifically to beat Oklahoma. I know it's not going to be for a conference championship game, but they're going to be up for this one in Norman. And I think, again, until this Oklahoma offense can do it against a quality opponent like we saw against, like we didn't see against Baylor last week, I'm picking Iowa State in an upset. I got the Cyclones winning 31-30. to on a last second field goal on Saturday. Man, I I, I can't I, do it. I can't I, pick I, you in this one. Yeah, I mean I feel the same way in a sense, but I've got my crimson colored glasses on. I I have no faith in Lincoln Riley to correct a lot of those issues that we talked about earlier. Um so I've <laughs> but at the same time like I just I don't feel like I can pick against OU at home. Um, I'll take OU 30 to 28, but man, I don't feel good about it. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us on tonight's episode. As always, give us a follow on Twitter at the mainline pod one. Like, and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star review. Uh, OU Iowa state 11 a.m. Big noon kickoff is going to be in town. Caleb Kelly is going to be on set with coach stoops uh, and the rest of the big noon kickoff crew. But yeah, that's going to do it for us. Tyler, Uh, Adam Corbin, we'll see you back here next week and can't wait to wrap it up and look ahead to a big-time Bedlam matchup uh, right here on the Mainline Podcast.